Oh. Okay. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. How are you? It's great to see you for another wonderful Thursday afternoon class. Thank you all for coming out. I want to begin by thanking you. Yes, you for coming out and joining us, especially those who are brave enough to put on their screens. Thank you for joining it. Makes it feel much more personal. We see you. We know that you're there. We know if you're enjoying. When I say jokes, I can tell how bad they are by how much lack of laughter there is. Um, you know, so thank you all for coming. Thank you for putting on your screens if you can. And thank you for listening. Thank you for, you know, I, I got to say that throughout this whole pandemic, which believe, believe it or not, officially is still going on. We're like 18 years in now. You guys have been a, a major sense uh, source of sanity for me. So thank you. Uh, this class has been phenomenal. So thank you all for coming out. I want to thank the amazing staff over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for enabling these lunch and learns every Thursday, as well as all the other classes that we do. And I want to thank the amazing people over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. It's got billions of hours of brilliant Torah knowledge that you can download and listen to and enjoy. My house is always filled with the sounds of Torah Anytime. We've got one of my daughters listening to Rabbi Yeshua Zitron, and my wife is listening to Rabbi Ari Ben Chushan. And, you know, it just, our house is full of you know, classes, and, and it's beautiful, it's wonderful. So thank you to Torah Anytime. One more important thing is that there's also the ability to download it now as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, all, wherever you get your podcasts, we be there and we be waiting for you. So if you find it easier to use the podcast app, which I personally find it a little bit easier to use the podcast app, go for it. It's called Burnham on the Parsha. That's right. Flo, thank you very much for putting it out there. All righty. Boom. Let's get down to Binit. It is Parshas Korach, where we are going to read about a dispute that tore the Jewish people apart, a dispute about the leadership of the Jewish people, a dispute about the veracity of the Talmud Chachamim and the Torah scholars. And um, can everybody hear good? Okay. So, Harry, I don't know what's going on with your computer, but it's not... A <laughs> We ain't the problem. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about that today. So the parsha starts off. It's in Bamidbar, uh, chapter Parak Tzayin Pasuk Aleph, chapter sixteen, verse one. Vayikach Korach ben Yitzhar ben Kahas ben Levi, and Korach the son of Yitzhar, the son of Kahas, the son of Levi, took. We'll see what he took in a moment. Vidasan vaviram, and he dasan aviram. Bnei Eliav, the children of Eliav, Uvaon ben Pelas Bnei Ruvain, and On ben Pelas who came from the tribe of Ruvain, by Akumul of name Moshe, by Anashim Bnei Esau, Hamishim Masayim, the Siyeda, Kriyashem, Moed, Anshashem. The people that they took were additional 250 people, leaders, uh, people who were from the, in, the intelligentsia, the people who were respected, the people who were, you know, leaders of the Jewish people. And they're going to come to Moshe with a complaint like, you've got too much power, right? Which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. But first of all, how did we get, how did he get the tribe? It says that most of the people that he brought were from the tribe of Reuven. And the sages tell us that part of this is, Russia, which means woe is to the wicked person and woe is to his neighbor. The people of Kahas, if you look at how the diagram of where everybody was situated around the Mishkan, so you had the tabernacle, there were three rings. The Jewish camp in the desert was three rings, three concentric, well, one, one thing in the middle, and then two concentric rings around it. 
In the middle was the tabernacle, the house of God. Around it was the tribe of Levi in their various families and camps, and the, and the Kohanim, which were also from the tribe of Levi. And then around them were all the tribes of Israel. Now the people of Kahas, the Kahasites, which one of them was Korach, as we said, by Yikach Korach, by Yitzhar ben Kahas. So Korach was from the Kahasite family, and he would have been on the if the camp was facing forward, he was not in front. He was not in front. He was to the right side, okay? And on that side, the tribes of Israel were Reuben, Shimon, and I forgot who the third tribe was, who it was on that side of the camp. So because Reuben was next door to Korach, when Korach made a rebellion, he grabbed his neighbors. He's like, hey, guys, I'm making a barbecue and a rebellion. Why don't you come over? Come for the barbecue, stay for the rebellion, right? Let's make a party out of this, okay? And that's why the sages tell us, Oy Russia, Oy Lashreno, woe is to the wicked one, woe is to his neighbor. As a matter of fact, there is a statement in our sages that were in, in Pirkei Avos, where this great rabbi asked his student, he says, go find out what is the most important thing to have, what's the best thing to have? And they go out and they spread out to find what the best thing is, and they come back and they say, that there's many different opinions for five different students, each one had a different opinion. But one of the opinions is the best thing that you could have is a good neighbor. You know why? Because a good neighbor rubs off on you in a good way and you become a better person via osmosis. Now, why is that fair? Why is it fair that you should become a better person via osmosis? Because you chose the neighborhood to live in, right? Meaning that's what you did right. That was your right move. Your right move was choosing to live in this neighborhood with this good person. And then the benefit that you reap from that is that you are a better person because you see them all the time and they're happy and they're good and they're kind and they're honest, they're hardworking. And you are just impressed by that. And slowly, slowly, you become more good, more happy, more kind, more honest, more hardworking, and all is good in the neighborhood. So the problem is what happens if the neighborhood ain't so good? What happens if you have Korah, who's a bad man? He's going to grab his neighbors. So that is the simple explanation, the Pashat Pshat, the one that we've probably heard before. However, the Ibn Ezra, the Ibn Ezra, one of the great commentators on the Torah, points out to another reason that he got the tribe of Ruvain. He got together a coalition of the aggrieved. Korach got together a coalition of the aggrieved. How so? So Korach himself felt like he was passed up, right? Korach felt like he should have gotten a certain job. He should have gotten the job of being the family leader of the Kahasite family, which was one family out of three in the tribe of Levi, which I always say, it's like Korach, by the way, was one of the wealthiest people. He, according to the Gemara, he was the wealthiest man alive at the time. Okay. Korach was the wealthiest man. The Forbes 400. Yeah. He was number one. Okay. That's right. Number one, Korach. Number two, I don't know. Is it, is it Bezos right now? Or is it Elon Musk? Yeah, Warren Buffett, not so great, falling behind, right? Warren Buffett, yeah, go ahead, back. You and Charlie Munger, go back to the, to the, to the prehistoric age. You guys have missed a beat a couple of times. You guys barely beaten S&P over here for the last 10 years, and people still call you the Oracle of Omaha. I don't know what's up with that. But the bottom line is, Korach is at the top of the Forbes 400. Not only that, Korach is an incredible tzaddik and an incredible Talmud Chacham a great Torah scholar. He is one of the few people who has the most coveted of jobs for the Levites. What's his job? Yeah, you get to carry the Aron, okay? The Aron is the holiest of all vessels, right? In the tabernacle, in the Mishkan, there were a number of different vessels. There was the menorah, 
There was the shulchan, the showbread table. There was the mizbeach hazav, the golden mizbeach, the golden altar. There is the mizbeach hanachoshes, the copper altar that was outside in the courtyard. Now, Lee wants to know how did Korach get so wealthy, a former slave? Well, little known fact, Korach was never a slave. Why? Because he was from the tribe of Levi. And the tribe of Levi did not work in the Shibut of Mitzrayim in the Egyptian uh, exile. When Pharaoh started the work, okay, this goes back hundreds of years before when Pharaoh started the work, he made it into this very patriotic project. There was going to be this very patriotic project, public's work projects, right? A big public works project. We're going to rebuild Egypt, make Egypt great again, okay? And when he called this out, everybody started showing up. And of course, who's the first people to show up to show their patriotism? The Jews, of course, we're always trying to be better at what everybody else is. The Jews have such a drive to be better. We got to be more American than the Americans. And when we live in Germany, we got to be more German than the Germans. And when we lived in France, we had to be more French than the French. I don't want Grey Poupon. I want French's mustard. I know it's made in America, but it says French's on it. And I want to be more French than the French. Right? When we were in Egypt, we wanted to be more Egyptian than the Egyptians. So when Paro made a call, said, bring everybody out. We're going to be having this major public works project. Who shows up suit and tie in the morning? Well, not suit and tie. Dungarees and shovel. <laughs> Who shows up the first morning? Dungarees and shovel. All the Jewish people, except for what? Except for the tribe of Levi. Now, Paro was promising there would be great amounts of money. It was the infrastructure package. Paro was making the multi-billion dollar infrastructure package to rebuild Egypt stronger and better. And the Jews came out, all of the Jews, except for the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi was like, that's not our job. Our job in this world is not to rebuild Egypt stronger and better. Our job is to sit and learn Torah. Our job is to be the spiritual light to the world, not the construction crew. So where all the Jews were heading out to the public's works in their dungarees with their shovel in hand, the tribe of Levi was sitting and learning. Now, what ended up happening is that all the people who went to the great public's works project, and the measures tells us that the very first day, Pyro himself was sitting and working. The very first day, Pyro himself had his shovel and he was working, but yet slowly all the Egyptians slipped away, but they forced his, the Jewish people to stay. And that's how the beginning of the slave labor started. Well, guess what? There was one tribe who was never part of the slave labor because they never got involved with it. They never engaged with it voluntarily in the beginning, and therefore they were never caught up in it against their will later. And that's why the tribe of Levi was not a former slave tribe. That's just one answer to your question. But more importantly, how did everybody get wealthy in those days? The way all the Jews got wealthy was by what's called Bezos Mitzrayim, the loot of Egypt. There was two times that you got to be able to get lots of riches from Egypt. Number one, as the Egyptians were in a great panic trying to push the Jewish people out of their land, the Jewish people were coming to the Egyptians and saying, hey, man, can I get that uh, diamond uh, tennis bracelet you got for your wife? And the guy's like, me? Tennis bracelet for my wife? I wish. I don't got that. And the Jews are like, yeah, Egyptian, I know how you guys do it. You always hide your money under your floorboards. I was here. <laughs> you like that? Turn the tables over here. The Jews were like, yeah, Mr. Egyptian man, I know you always hide your wealth under the floorboards. I was actually in your house during the, the, the plague of darkness. 
And I know that you've got a tennis bracelet under your third floorboard from the left. And along with it, you also have some uh, original stocks in Apple and Amazon. And you also have a, uh, a gold pitcher. I, I want it all. And the guy's like, are you out of your mind? I'm not giving you that stuff. And the Jew's like, okay, fine. We'll just stay in Egypt. And the death and destruction of the, G the Egyptian people will keep on going. The guy's like, no, 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 just take it, take it and get out. That was the first way the Jewish people got rich from Bezos Mitzrayim. The second way was the Egyptian soldiers and used to take all of their wealth with them into battle. That was an incentive for them not to lose battle because you know, if you lost your battle, you lost all your wealth. You'd come back penniless. And the sages tell us that greater than was the Biza of Mitzrayim, the greater than the loot they got from Egypt when they left the first time was the amount of, that they really picked off the dead soldiers and the dead and the chariots at the sea. When the Egyptian army came galloping after the Jewish people and ran after them into the sea, and then the sea covered them over, Hashem made a miracle, and the sea spat out the Egyptians. And the sea spat out the Egyptians, and there they were in all this, all their gold and their silver and their jewels and their encrusted chariots, and they got rich there too. So Korach was very, very, very wealthy, number one. Number two, Korach carried the ark. Korach carried the ark of all the temple vessels. That was the holiest one. Like I said, you have the copper mizbeach, you have the golden mizbeach, you got the menorah, you got the showbreads, you got all the, the, the poles and the beams, the krashim and the adonim. But Korach, had the most exalted position of carrying the ark. Now, when you carried the ark, it was a miraculous experience because the ark didn't want to be carried. The ark is so holy and so spiritual that the sages tell us that the Aron was no say esnosa, which means the Aron would literally levitate and pick up, it would carry those who were, who were trying to carry it. Like, you think you're going to carry God's Torah? No, 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 The Torah will carry you. So there was a miracle that occurred to those who would specifically tasked with carrying of the ark that they would float in the heavens, holding on. It looks like you're holding them. You're, it look, you think you're holding up the Aaron, but the Aaron is holding you up. Which, by the way, the sages tell us, you think that you're upholding Torah when you donate to Torah institutions, which you should all do. We should all be involved in donating to Torah institutions like Partners Detroit, Yeshiva Bat Yehuda, and many other billions of great causes. Please donate to them all. But when you donate to them, don't walk around being like, yeah, I'm holding up the Torah. No, 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 no. The Torah is holding you up. The reason why you're successful, the reason why you're wealthy, I just spoke to a guy here in town. And the guy, Baruch Hashem, has built up a very, very successful business in the last, like, maybe... 10 years, 10 years ago, he, his, he didn't have it. He didn't have a business. He worked for somebody else and he was, you know, he did okay, but nothing special and uh, whatever it is, but Baruch Hashem, he's built up an incredibly successful business doing uh, over $10 million a year of revenue, 15, $20 million a year of revenue. And I asked him, like, we were talking about charity and he said, I'll tell you something, Rabbi. He says, as soon as I started just giving charity without, without like, I used to be so uptight about my charity. Well, who's this going to? And I want to know. I used to be so uptight about my charity. Now, of course, uptight about your charity does not mean you should be careful not to give your charity to scams. Don't give your charity to the red heifer, you know, uh, pamphlet that comes into your house saying that you can, for $327, you could buy a cow for a village in India and it will support the whole village and it will also give them chickens and electricity and a better way of life. And you think that for $327, you're going to lift an entire village out of poverty into the middle class when you find out later that red heifer is keeping 85% of the money for themselves. Don't go for scams, obviously, but 
So you got to be, you want to make sure you're giving to the right places. But he was always like, I should have given this much, should I give that much. He didn't give that much. He says, once he started just giving charity to support Torah, he said his, his business just rocketed. Who's carrying who? Who's carrying who? The Aron is no say as no sub. The Torah upholds those who uphold it. Think about how many people that I, I could think of so many people I know who are fabulously, fabulously wealthy. And they're all significant supporters of Torah. The Torah upholds and lifts up and makes float those who support it. So Korach had all these positions. Korach was literally one of the people who had the honor of holding up the Aron, of holding up the Ark of God. And yet he made a fight because he felt that his younger cousin got the job of head of family of Kahas within the tribe of Levi. Okay, so again, it's like under secretary of the Navy. And he felt that his younger cousin got the job when he should have had that title. Yes, I've got the richest man in the world. Yes, I've got, you know, you see these, these, these war veterans. And they've got like rows and rows and rows and rows of medals, right? So like, he's got the richest man in the world medal. He's got the great Talmud Chacham medal. He's got the medal that says I get to carry the Aron. But I don't have the medal of Rosh base of the Mishpachas Kahas. I don't have the medal of the head of the family of Kahas within the tribe of Levi, within the tribe of Klai Yisrael, within the people of Klai Yisrael. He goes to war. But when you're angry and you feel aggrieved, you know who you want to combine with? All the other ones who feel aggrieved, right? You want to combine with all the other ones who feel aggrieved. So who do you go to? You go to the tribe of Ruvain. Why does the tribe of Ruvain feel aggrieved? Because if you remember, originally the service in the temple and the holy jobs were all supposed to be done by the tribe, by, by the Bechorim, by the firstborns. The firstborns were supposed to be the ones who would have all the honor and the glory, but they lost it when they served. They lost it at the golden calf, the story of the golden calf, and we'll get back into that in a moment. So when you, Korach, are aggrieved, who do you seek out? More aggrieved people. So you can all be miserable together. Misery loves company. You, Korach, wealthiest man in the world, but yet you feel so aggrieved because somebody else out there got one thing that you wanted. So who are you going to seek out? You're going to seek out all the other people who have had their opportunities stripped from them. Let me go hang out with the people of Ruben. We see it today, by the way. You look at society today, and you see that so frequently, the people who just want to be victims just congregate around other people who want to be victims. We have a weird world today. It used to be that you showed how elite you were by how successful you were. It used to be that status was conferred upon those who fought for great success in the face of adversity. Today, all we gotta do is point out that we're such a great victim. That's the trick, to tell everybody how you are a victim. You can be a crazy famous celebrity. You can be a prince and a princess. Literally, you could literally be a prince and a princess, like Harry and, and, and Marco, Megan. And you, but, 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 what, where do you seek refuge? Not in talking about what you're going to do to save the world or help the world. No, 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 no. It's they robbed me of this and they took away this from me. And it was so hard for me growing up as a royal, so difficult. 
And this girl came to England literally seeking to marry into the aristocracy, telling her friends, I'm looking to marry into the aristocracy. Then she marries the prince of England and goes on all over the world on tour talking about what a nebuch victim she is. Poor, poor, poor Meghan Markle. But it's all over the world. Everyone's looking to say, I'm a victim. This is nothing new. This goes back to Korach. Korach has so much. Rab lachem b'nei levi. Moshe says to him, you've got so much. You are from the chosen tribe, the Levi. You are the richest man in the world. You are a great respected Talmud Chacham. You carry the Aron, but what are you sitting here? You're wallowing in your misery because you are aggrieved. You're a victim. You are passed over. You are ignored. You are discriminated against. And who do you seek out? The tribe of Reuven. Because it used to be that the Bechor was the one who would serve. But instead, that was taken away from the Bechorim and given to the Levites. So who is aggrieved? The tribe of Reuven. Reuven was the Bechor. Reuven was the firstborn. Yaakov Avinu says, Reuven, Bechoriata, you were my firstborn. Now, Reuven lost. Reuven lost the, the rights to what he, he could have had. As Yaakov says to him very clearly, and the end of Parshas Vayechi, when Yaakov says to Reuven, what, what happened to it? He says like this. Hold on. Yes, sir, se'es v'yeser o's. Pachas kamayim maltosaf. You and your impetuousness, and one of the things that you did, he did something, he made a big mistake. He messed around with his father's intimacy. And Jacob says to him, Reuven, Bechoriata, you were my firstborn. Kochi, voracious Oni, my strength and my initial vigor. Yes, sir, se'es, be yes, sir, o's. You were supposed to be, you, you were supposed to be foremost in honor and foremost in power. You should have been the Kohen and you should have been the king, but you lost it all because of something that you did. Because you acted inappropriately. But instead of accepting that you did something wrong and taking responsibility for what you did, you hold on to your victimhood. No, it's not I, that, that I made a mistake. It's their fault because they became the next leaders. The tribe of Levi who did everything right, who didn't fall for the scam in Egypt, who didn't fall for the Egel Hazar for the golden calf. After the golden calf was served, and by the way, the entire tribe of Levi did not serve at the golden calf. But that was not enough to give them what they ended up getting. Why did they get the honor of being the, the sanctified tribe that did the work in the temple? Because after the golden calf, when Moshe came down and said, we got to root out the evil in our midst, me, la, shem, who is willing to step forward and fight against evil? It's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to have to excoriate people. We're going to have to remove people. We're going to have to discriminate against people. Who is ready to stand up for justice and fight against what's wrong? And the entire tribe of Levi stepped forward. That is when they became the tribe that would end up being the ones that served in the temple. God says, I want people who are willing to stand up to fight against evil. Not the ones who stand by silently. The vast majority of the Jewish people did not, did not serve the eagle, did not serve the golden calf. The vast majority did not. Levi was the tribe that said, I'm not going to stand by silently disapproving. No. 
I will stand, I will step up, I will step forward. I will be willing to fight against the forces of evil, even if it's in my own family. Even if it means being really, really uncomfortable because people are going to call me out as a zealot and a weirdo and a crazy man and a bigot and a racist and whatever it might be, I will step forward for what's right. I'm not going to be the silent majority. I'm going to be the active minority that saves and fights evil. And because of that, Levi was given the kahuna. And who comes along? Korach. Korach comes along to do what? To make trouble. Let's get the aggrieved together. Let's get all the people who don't have everything they want. And maybe they made a lot of bad choices in their lives. But instead of saying, we made some bad choices, we made some mistakes. And that's how we ended up here. And what can we do to turn our lives around? We're going to find everything wrong that everybody ever passed us over. Everything that we can complain about. And we're going to make a coalition of the aggrieved. Korach and Ruvain and On Ben Pelas from Ruvain. So that's what the Eben Ezra says. And that's, I think, for us, just an incredibly important lesson in life. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be the aggrieved who wallows in everything that you didn't? I heard an, I heard an amazing story. Somebody said, yesterday I listened to a, there's a, there's a shear by Rabbi Rosner. And actually, I like to listen to it. It sparks a lot of thought. Sometimes, you know, obviously his name is Rabbi Rosner on the Parsha. Um, so he sent over a story yesterday that there was this guy who was talking to two young kids um, who were struggling and, and sort of leaving the path of Judaism. And they were saying, you know, we had it tough when we were kids. Our rabbi used to yell at us or whatever. So, the, so this guy says, are you serious? He says, when I was a kid, when the rabbis in our school got angry, if two kids were fighting, they would take our two heads and smash them together. And the kid said, really? Oh my gosh, what a waste. You could have gone off the derach and had an excuse. Right? Meaning you, you could have left Judaism. You had such a good excuse. What a shame you didn't do that. <laughs> Everyone's looking for an excuse to do nothing. Everyone's looking for an excuse to say, I don't got to be successful in life. It's not my fault. Someone bashed my head together when I was a kid. And they literally said to him, like, you had an excuse to not do anything. Guess what? Most of us do. Guess what? Most of us have been through difficulties. Guess what? Most of us have had life deal us a bad hand at some times, and some more than others, unquestionably. I've spoken to people who have been through, I think I mentioned this maybe last week. I don't remember. I got a call. I I try to make herring. (laughs) I try to make herring. Ever since the coronavirus, I was talking about making people cookies. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to make people cookies. Maybe I'll make herring. So I make herring. I, I believe it's very delicious. Um, this week, what are, what are the flavors? I just made herring this week. The flavors are lemon, pesto, basil. Um, let's see. i got a picture of them here. Here's the, here's, okay. So here's the three flavors. You see that? We got the lemon, pesto, basil. We've got the no lemon pesto herb, candied curry, and Southwest Chipotle. Let me tell you, the words curry and herring were never put together, I believe, probably until they were in the Burnham kitchen. But it's actually quite delicious. Anyway, so I was about to make herring last week, and this guy called me up. It was really Bashart. He had found me because I write for a magazine uh, called the Bina Magazine, and he had found my name or whatever it was, and he was going through some serious, serious, serious stress. 
And he called me up and he's like, he's like, Rabbi, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I got your number, whatever. He's like, I'm going through a tough time. Can you help me? I'm, I'm in New York. I don't live in New York. I live in a different place, but I'm, I'm, I'm going through like a panic right now. Can you find, can you help me find somebody? I need, I need to talk to somebody on load right now. I said to him, it happens to me. I'm about to make herring for the next hour and a half because I'm making the herring process. So I usually listen to, you know, I listen to Torah classes, Torah anytime or a podcast or whatever it is. Um, but I'm like, listen, you know, I, I, I'll be happy to just plug in my earphones and you can talk to me. And he was like, really? I said, great. Yeah. So, and he told me over what his life was like. And let me tell you, this guy, the, the tsaras that he had been through, such horrific tsaras. Now this man has started multiple organizations that are helping hundreds of people. And he's under the age of 40. And he has been through so much horror, horror straight up horror in his life. But yet, He's helping so many people. Most of us have had real challenges. Again, some more than others. But those challenges are either going to be what allows you to just run away from everything your whole life. Like, oh, your rabbi bashed your head against your friend. You should have, you should have run away from all responsibility. You have such a good excuse. You can tell people, it's not my fault. My rabbi bashed my head in the wall or whatever it is. You know, Some people use it as an excuse to run away an excuse to check out, an excuse to walk around feeling aggrieved. It's not fair. You didn't give me this. You didn't give me that. And some people say, this is an impetus for me to fight harder. This is a fire in my belly that I'm going to use to start multiple organizations helping hundreds or thousands of people because I've got a fire in my belly because of all the pain and suffering that I went through. You have so much privilege. You have so much great things going on for you. So you got passed over a little bit. Ruvain, you've got so much going for you and, and you got passed over too because of things that you did wrong. So you can either wallow in your misery and claim your victimhood status and walk around parading your victimhood status to the world and tell everybody why you can't be successful because everyone else is holding you down or you can fight through and become amazing. What do you want to do? If you want to be a victim, guess what? I'll, I'll give you the pass. Just say the word. Just say the word. This guy that I spoke to, whatever it was last week, again, he miraculously called me right before I was about to sit and make herring for an hour and a half. What a special human being. What an incredibly special human being had been through horrors like you cannot imagine. Every kind of abuse. And for years. But yet this man has been so extraordinarily successful right now. And he's going through real, real challenges. And you know what? We say here, look, you get a card. This is your get out of jail free card. You can just tell people what happened to you and no one's going to fault you for checking out a life. Or you can say, I've been through a lot of difficulties and I don't feel like I got everything that I deserved or whatever it is, but who does? And I'm going to fight to continue to make greatness in the world. Someone, today, someone this week reached out to me, said, if the Jews are the greatest people, the chosen nation, why do we suffer so much? There's a lot of answers to that. But one, one part of the answer is, it's not a bug. It's a feature. What do I mean by that? A bug is when something goes wrong with your software. A feature is when something that your software is programmed to do. Greatness always comes out of overcoming challenge. That's where greatness comes from. If we want to be the greatest nation in this world, which we are in terms of our accomplishments, both spiritual and physical in the world, we're going to have to go through a lot of challenge. Now, we can challenge ourselves in different ways. We can have external challenges from the nations around us. 
or we can have the internal battles of fighting for our own goodness to do the right thing, which by the way, is even more difficult. It's even more difficult to be great, to fight your Melchamas Hayetzer, the fights that you have to put up with your own soul to be the great person you know you are. That's much harder. But God says, you will be a great nation and greatness only comes out of overcoming suffering and overcoming challenge. So again, if we end up working it through our own internal challenges and we end up working it through our own inside work, then we don't need the external challenges. But when we're not doing anything or we're not trying to fight to become the Melchemist Ayatzah, we're not fighting the battle with our own selves, the battle, the internal moral ethical battle. And we just, just secede from that fight and we just let, we just let go. Then we have the external battles. But no matter what, the, the fact that we get challenged a lot, the fact that we get suffering, the fact that we get, that, that's, a, that's a feature of Judaism. It's not a bug. That's part of how we become this great nation. So that's the first step that we learn. The first thing that we learn from Korach is you get to choose. Focus on the good in your life. And by the way, boy, did the Korach have so much good. Rav Lachem B'nai Levi. Or focus on what you're missing. And focus on who is not giving you what you deserve. See which one works out well for you. And I, I can tell you, that, well, I'll give you a hint. Focusing on what you have and what you can do with it works out much better for you. We can see that from Korach, from this story. That's idea number one. Idea number two. And this is based on something that Rabbi Rosner said yesterday. It starts off, the parsha starts off by Yikach Korach. And Korach took. So what did he take? This is by Yikach Korach and Korach took. So one of the midrashim on this says, Lokach Mekach Raliatzmo. He took a bad deal for himself. He took a bad deal. What was this bad deal? And I think we've spoken about this before. There's a Pasuk in Isaiah, in Yeshaya. Mem Zion, sorry, Mem, either Mem Gimel Zion or Mem Zion Gimel. Maybe Mem, Mem Zion Zion. So it's either 47.7 or 47.3 or 43.7. <laughs> okay, but the verse says the following. Call on Nikra Bishmi. Everything that is called in my name will l'chvodi barasiv yitzartiv afasisiv. I made it for my honor. And I fashioned it, I created it for my honor. Now, what does that mean? God creating things for his honor. What that basically means is that the honor of God, the glory of God, is when the world, when the whole world will come together in one heart to do the right thing with one sense of unity, one block of unity. Everything in the world is going to point you towards living the moral, ethical, godly life. The only difference is, does it happen on the front side or on the, on the back nine? There are people who we are inspired by, who live lives of godliness, who live lives of beauty and sanctity and joy. And we see them and we say, wow, I want to be like that. Baruch Hashem, in my, neighbor, in my neighborhood alone, I just I think just down the, down the block, I just I have so many people who I'm so incredibly jealous of in a good way like they they're they're living a beautiful special holy life and i just i want to i want to live my life closer to the way the way they're living their life that's one way you could live and people you can inspire everything is going to bring people 
to a recognition of godliness. Some people do it by the way they by, by, by the way they succeed. And some people do it by the way they fail. Okay? When you see people who, who are not kind, who are, who are cynical, who are mean, who are nasty, but then you see later in life how they don't have anybody. How they don't have, they're not close with their children. They don't have community because all they did for the last 50 years was just cut everybody down and make fun and destroy and be cynical and nasty. And then you see them and you say, wow, I don't want to be like that. Let me make sure I get the cynicism and the anger and the nastiness out of me because I don't want to end up like that. Everybody teaches a lesson. Everybody teaches the world ethics and morality. Some by the way they succeed and some by the way they fail. You know, Korach has grandchildren who became incredibly special. Shmuel, the prophet. By the way, we learn prophets at 7 p.m. in the middle of the book of Sha'ol Aleph on, Thursday, on Tuesday nights. If anybody here is not part of that group who hears this class and would like to join our Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Navi Prophets class, please feel free to email me at lburnham at partnersdetroit.org. Again, that's lburnham at partnersdetroit.org, and I'll send you a, an invitation. We're in the middle of learning about Shmuel. Shmuel comes from the descendants of Korach. And on Shabbos, we say, we equate Shmuel to Moshe and Aaron. In certain ways, Shmuel becomes so great that he's like Moshe and Aaron together. And he comes out of the children of Korach. You look at Psalms, Psalms number 47, Memzayin. One of the main psalms that we say in Shul on Rosh Hashanah is a psalm written by the grandchildren of Korach. How did Korach merit all this? How did Korach merit such incredible descendants? The answer is, and this answer I heard by Rabbi, on Rabbi Rosner's class yesterday, but I'm going to, boom, I'm going to kick it up. Hopefully I'm going to add on a little bit. And I don't remember who he said in the name of. Korach was an incredible inspiration for the Jewish people. He taught people, look what happens when you fight against the rabbis. Look what happens when you fight against those who are teaching Torah in God's name. You get swallowed up by the ground and nothing remains of you. The words that Korach is still screaming from the grave, the Gemara tells us that there's a certain place in the desert that you can find and you can still hear the sound of Korach and his people yelling from the grave. Moshe is true. His Torah is true. And we were the liars. And then, of course, we've got that beautiful song. Moshe, Ms. Moshe, Ms. 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 Where do we get that song from? From Korach. So much good came out of Korach. The Gemara tells us that the grandchildren of Haman taught Torah and Bnei Brak. How did he get the merit to have that? Because Haman was such a source of inspiration to the world. We learn so much from Haman. But we don't learn by how he succeeded. We learn by how he failed. 
He took a bad bargain for himself. He took a bad deal. Everybody in life is going to inspire other people, but some people by how they succeed and some people by how they fail. Take the good deal. Be the person who inspires others by the way you live and succeed, not by the way you fail. Be the loser that people learn how not to be. Be the winner that people learn how to be. And that's what it means. By Yikach Korach, and Korach took a Mekach Atzmo. He took a bad deal for himself. So that was the idea that I heard from Rabbi Rosner. But I want to add on another idea from this week's same Parsha. So Korach has these 250 henchmen. They're all part of this rebellion together. They're all leaders, all intelligent people, successful people. And they all come for this showdown, the craziest showdown. There's going to be everybody. Moshe says, you guys want to fight? You guys want to fight? Fine. Here's what we'll do. Tomorrow morning, everybody show up with a fire pan. Put in it coals, and we're going to put incense on it. But let me give you the exact rules, just so you know. This is an MMA cage, but like one of the ones in like, I don't know, Malaysia, or wherever those like fight to the death matches happen, you know, like the illegal ones. Okay, we're going to lock two people in the cage here. One's coming out alive and one is not. Okay, this is a death match, the real deal. So we're going to have tomorrow morning, whoever thinks that they should be the leader, not Aaron, you guys think that I appointed Aaron as an out of nepotism. Whoever thinks they should be the leader, show up tomorrow morning with your, with your fire pan and your coals and your incense. And then at the start of the gun at 10 a.m. in front of everybody, we're going to all, everyone's going to do a sacrifice of service. We're going to put your coals. You're going to put the incense on. And then here's what's going to happen, guys. Listen carefully. Here are the ground rules for this fight. I'm going to need you to sign a waiver. You know what I'm saying? A consent form. You may end up dying in this process and no one's suing you. I don't want to, we don't want this, your estate suing our company. Like when you go horseback riding, you sign your life away. You go on a trampoline, you got to, it's amazing. America is so, so concerned and rightfully so about being sued. Every time you go horseback riding, you jump on a trampoline, you take a ride on the bus. We need you to sign a waiver first. You know what I'm saying? So most is like, you guys got to sign waivers because this is how it's going to go down. A fire will come out from heaven. A fire will come out from heaven. And it will light up and bring a beautiful offering out of the one man who is supposed to be the chosen one of God. But everybody else is going to die in a fire from heaven too. There will be a fire NATO coming down from heaven and it will burn up everybody else to a crisp. So choose wisely. You want to play this game, show up tomorrow with your fire pan, but just make sure you sign the waiver first. I don't want any lawsuits. You were told the ground rules. And what happens? Sure enough, these fools show up. Look at the chances of your success. God chose Aaron. Moshe, the leader who took you out of Egypt, who used his staff to break the, to, to open up the sea, who did all the miracles, he tells you that God chose Aaron, my brother. I didn't choose him. God chose him. Now there's 250 other folk, men, all men, by the way. Women don't fall for this stuff. They really don't. They just don't ever fall for this stuff. Power to the women. They didn't fall for the, by the spies, which we talked about last week. They didn't fall for this. They didn't fall for the golden calf. Not one woman steps forward and says, I think I'm the one. Not one. Now think about the chances. Out of 250 men, if you're one man out of 250, you're less than half a percent. But you're 0.4%. There's 
four-tenths of a percent that you're going to be the one who gets chosen. And the other side is certain death. So you're playing a game where 99.6% of people are going to die. And maybe 0.4 are going to be successful. Or 100% are going to die and Aaron's going to be successful. You want to play this game? Maybe you're not that good at math. Or maybe you're taking extraordinary risks, blinded by your desire for kavod, for honor. But that's what happens. So here's the story. It says the Pasuk in Perak, Tes, Zion, Pasuk Lamed Hay, 1635. And a fire came out from God. And it consumed the 250 men who were offering their incense. Then listen carefully to what it says right next to that. The next verses, after this entire display, the entire Jewish people just watched 250 people be incinerated. speaks to Moshe saying, Speak to Elazar, the son of Aaron HaKohen, Okay, there's like this clearing. And in the clearing, there's 250 dead people burned to a crisp, a heap of ashes. But next to them are their fire pans. Their fire pans made out of copper. So go, says, uh, and the fire pans still have the coals in them and the incense. So Hashem says, go tell Elazar HaKohen, that he should pick up all the fire pans from the fire, throw out the fire, the coals, these fire pans are holy. The people who brought them were trying to bring a carbon to me. They were trying to bring a sacrifice to me. Take the fire pans of these sinners who sin with their souls. And you should make them, they're made out of copper. Hammer out, hammer them out. Go to a coppersmith. And make hammered out sheets as a covering for the altar. They brought them as a carbon before God and they were sanctified this. So we can't throw them out. Instead, make cladding, copper cladding for the Mizbeach. Think about this amazing idea. At the end of the day, these 250 fire pans are going to be on the Mizbeach. And every time, because they, they, they were brought as a carbon, they were brought as an offering to God. Misguided, yeah, but they were brought as an offering. And every time we bring carbonos and we see this beautiful copper cladding on the Mizbeach, we're going to remember. These 250 men, they brought a carbon. You know what they brought? They brought themselves. They died in the process. But guess what? We learned from them too. Everything in the end will be a lesson for morality and ethics, some through their success and some through their failure. Every time we come to the Mizbech and we see this beautiful copper cladding, we remember the failure of those who try to rebel against Hashem's emissaries in this world. And we say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be like Korach and his people. And the rule stands strong. Everything in the world, every person in the world will be a lesson of morality and ethics, either as a success or as a failure. Korach's, Korach was a failure. But he taught a lot of people. He taught a lot of people not to be like Korach and his people. And because of that, he had grandchildren who, who wrote to Helen. Haman 
Everyone learned from his failure. He had grandchildren who taught Torah and Bnei Brak. The 250 men who foolhardily tried to take away the leadership from Aaron, despite Moshe telling them Aaron was chosen by God. Their firepans were holy because those firepans were used as a sacrifice to God and taught us all what not to do. It's amazing. It's a really, such an amazing thing. People will learn from you. People will learn from you. When I say you, I'm talking to you. People will learn from you. They're either going to learn what to do or what not to do. Let's give them what to learn from, of what to do. Let's give them a little inspiration so they can learn from us what to do and what not, what not, not to do. Next. After the 250 people are killed, what happens next? So you would think that they would get the point. No. They don't get the point. And the entire assembly of the Jewish people came complaining the next day to Moshe and Aaron saying, You killed the Jews! Moshe and Aaron, you killed them! didn't kill them, they killed themselves by making a rebellion against God. No, 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 no. The people don't learn. They don't learn. We're still the aggrieved ones. We're still the victims. These people who died, it was not their fault. They were just victims. You are the oppressors. You, Moshe and Aaron, who begged them not to fight. Who begged them, said, please, don't fight this battle. Your fault. It's your fault. You caused this. But you guys were the ones who burned down the city. No, no, it's your fault. You caused this. So the people are all complaining to Moshe and Aaron the next day, and suddenly, uh-oh. And it was, I'm going to read to you, the, I'm just going to read to you the translation. This is chapter 17, verses 7. And it was when the assembly gathered against Moshe and Aaron, they turned to the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud had covered it, and the glory of Hashem appeared. Moshe and Aaron came before the tent of a meeting, and Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Remove yourselves from the, among this assembly, and I'll just wipe them out an instant. They fell on their faces. Moshe said to Aaron, Quickly, take the fire pan. And bring Ketores, incense from the altar, because I know what's going on right now. A, a terrible plague is breaking out. And I remember when I, Moshe, was in heaven, and all the I had a battle of wits with the angels, different story for different time. And at the end, I beat the angels in a debate, and they all had to give me gifts. And the Malach us the gift, the, 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 the angel of death, the gift that he told me was the way to beat me is with the Ketores. Long conversation about why and how. We'll get to that in a moment, maybe, if we do. But go grab quickly a fire pan, put some katoris, put some incense on it, and go out and start saving the people. And sure enough, there was a magefa from Hashem, a terrible, terrible plague, and people were just dying. And Aaron goes out and he's standing with a fire pan. He's literally by Yamod Aaron, and Aaron is standing with his fire pan between the living and the dead. He's holding back, he's pushing back the Yetzirah, the Malachamavas, the evil inclination, who is the Satan, who is the angel of death. And he pushes it back. How many people died that day? 14,700. Now think about this. How many people died the first day? Maybe about 300. Because it was Korach and his entire family, Dasan and Aviram and their entire family, the leadership, their entire families got consumed because unfortunately that's what happens when you make a machlokas. You burn down your own family. You destroy your own family when you make divisiveness. 
When you make arguments and fights and familial fights, you destroy your own family. So Korach and Dasan and Aviram and their entire families went down, plus the 250 men. It's close to 300 people. How many people died the next day? 14,700. It's way worse, right? Here's a very important lesson. Oftentimes, the bigger test is not your initial test that you think it is. You're being tested, you're being tested, you're being tested, and it's so difficult, and you fail. Often, right after you fail, that's where the real test begins. The test is not about whether you're going to be successful or fail the first time. The test is how are you going to pick yourself back up after you failed? Are you ready to recognize your mistake and start making it better? Or are you going to heap failure upon failure and compound your failure by continuing to stubbornly go down the path you went before? Isn't this brilliant? It's just so amazing. The first day, 300 people die, less than 300. The second day, 14,700 people die. Because bigger test than the test of Korach was not just how bad that was, but when you've made the mistake, when you've fallen, when you've done the wrong thing, do you double down or do you step up and walk away and make amends? Do you fix it or do you double down? So many times in life, the greater test is not how I handle the first test that God throws my way. I may end up failing a lot on those tests. But can I get up and make it better? Or do I end up getting stuck and wallowing? Korach had this challenge of challenging Moshe. And terrible things happened. And 300 people died, less than 300. But the Jewish people now, there's a pause. There's a break. What are you going to do? Are you going to recognize the mistake that you made and step away from it? No, they double down the next morning. They heap sin upon sin. And we do that so often because we feel like a loser. We make a mistake. We do a terrible avera. We do a sin. We do something wrong. And the Yetzirah, he loves it when we do something wrong, not just because we did something wrong, but because now he can make you feel like a loser and he can make you do more wrong things. Oh, you did that wrong thing. Now you're going to suddenly go down in my ribs. Now you're suddenly going to start being a rat. You're going to be a, a big tzaddik suddenly. You're going to be a big, you know who you are. You're a loser. You failed. You failed. That's what he wants to tell you all day long. The HR just wants to make you believe that you're a loser and you can't step up and dust yourself off and get better. But often it's the second test that's a much more important test. And we know it's much more important because the second test was the one that caused 14,700 deaths. The first test only caused less than 300. And by the way, mind you, I, it's a full circle because we talked in the beginning of the Parsha, how did the tribe of Levi become great? Not because of the fact that they didn't serve the golden calf. That wasn't what was, it was when they were ready to be part of the cleanup team. The tribe of Levi became great. The Jewish people sinned, a small minority but the vast majority of people stood by and did nothing. Big mistake. Moshe comes down. He breaks the golden calf. He grinds it up. And he says, okay, who's ready to start being part of the cleanup team? It's going to be uncomfortable. There's a lot of, of, of egg on the Jewish people's face right now. Who wants to step forward and be part of the cleanup to make it better? By we love Colbane Levi. And the entire tribe of Levi says, Moshe, we're ready. We know it's going to be uncomfortable. We know we're going to have to denounce people in our midst, family members even. We're ready to do it. 
Ah, you're ready to be a part of the cleanup crew? That's when you become the tribe that Hashem chooses to be his service people. It's not that they didn't do the first sin. It's that when the cleanup time came, they stepped up forward. It's almost always the second situation that's even more important than the first one. So if you fail, you'll hear now, you'll, now that you've heard this idea, you're going to hear that voice. You're going to make a mistake. You know why I know you're not going to make a mistake? Because you're human. You know how I know you're human? Because you're on Zoom. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you're a human being, so you're going to make mistakes. But then remember, the bigger question is not whether you make a mistake or not. We all make mistakes. The question is, how do you handle it? Do you recognize your mistake and then get up the next day and start making your life better and start changing and start thinking, what have you done? What? Where did you go wrong? What, what were the triggers? What caused it? And how can I make sure I don't do this wrong again? Or do you just say... I can't do this. It's not, it's not possible. I'm just, I'm just, I can't, I'm just a failure. And just wallow in your self-pity. Again, in your victimhood status, going full circle and just keep doing wrong. So that is another idea. And I think at this point, we are past our time. You guys have been awesome. Thank you all for joining. Thank you for being amazing and have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful Shabbos.